This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We are back at the CHNC Symposium. This time we are joined by Dr. Sabrina Malone-Jenkins and Dr. Kristen Surrey. Guys, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Uh, Well, well, tell us um, where you're coming from and what made you decide to get involved with the genomics focus group? Sure. So um, I am at Riley Children's in Indianapolis, and um, I'm the director of our perinatal genomics program there, which um, started two years ago. So um, I'm a neonatologist. I'm not a double board, um, as other other colleagues are. Yeah. So uh, I point that out. This is a judgment-free zone. You know, we take just news. Yeah. So I I point that out because... um, you know, I really think that as neonatologists, uh, we have to embrace genomic medicine and realize that it's really something that um, we're finding all of our patients um, are needing this. And there are not enough geneticists for us to say, we'll just call genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, that this is really something that just like if you have a baby that you suspect congenital heart disease, you get the echo first, right? Um, or if you suspect a baby has sepsis, you send the blood cultures and start antibiotics. I like that analogy. Um, you know, helpful. or if you suspect a baby has seizures, you put the EEG on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that it's important that we as neonatologists start to recognize how big a problem this is in our population and take more ownership um, of this particular type of problem for our patients and understand how to navigate the genomic landscape of making a diagnosis and using that information to inform care for our patients. Yeah, you know, I feel like we have these patients where we say, well, we think there's something going on, but we're not quite sure. And we pro- we may have a test that could help us figure it out, but well, we're not going to send it yet, you know? And I imagine it's very frustrating for parents. It's frustrating for me as a physician to not have the answer, but yeah. extremely frustrating for parents. Yeah, and I think that's where we have a, a really great opportunity um, to do better. Um, so there's been several studies that have come out over the last five plus years that have really shown that in our population, um, in a baby that has a phenotype concerning for a genetic condition, and that can be a situation where you have multiple anomalies 
it can be a situation where you have metabolic disturbances that you can't explain, um, congenital skin disorders that um, you're not sure what to do with those growth issues that we can't explain. You know, why are some babies so growth restricted? Um, you know, there's, when there's, there's no history of, you know, maternal smoking or preeclampsia, but yet you have this very small baby. Uh, why is that? Those are all flags that you could have a patient with a genetic condition that's explaining those symptoms. And we now have good evidence showing that the, the best test to try to identify that genetic problem is whole genome sequencing. Um, and that we actually need to be sending rapid whole genome sequencing, mm-hmm. that the utility of making a genetic diagnosis and a utility of genetic tests comes with how quickly you can make a diagnosis. You know, And whole genome sequencing, we're finding that the diagnostic yield for that testing is you know, somewhere 25 to 40% mm. um, yeah. um, that you can get a diagnosis. And, and the other thing that's gotten less publication is the utility of a negative test. So we know that whole genome sequencing, if you have a non-diagnostic test, it doesn't definitively mean that you don't have a genetic condition, right? There's still things that we don't understand. Um, some genetic mechanisms are not well detected by whole genome sequencing, and you need other tests to sort that out. But when you have a negative or non-diagnostic whole genome sequence, you've actually excluded a lot of genetic problems. Yes. Right. Um, and... That can be incredibly helpful for the clinical teams and for families to at least know what we don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we're finding that even in babies that get negative tests, we're actually able to get those babies home faster right. Um, right. because we've taken a lot of things off of our list, a lot of things of concern, and we're able to develop a more definitive pathway and care plan for home. Getting right. out. Yeah, that's very interesting. That, that was um, helpful, especially to... Learn more about the kind of diagnostic yield. Appreciate that. And, and I, oh, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say, I think it's important to highlight the fact that as we were speaking with uh, Bimal earlier, like the presentation is so difficult. And so you're not going to get a typical presentation like, oh, I know, I know, I'm suspecting. And it's more about funky things happening that raise your index of suspicion. Um, and I guess my, I mean, my follow-up question would be, for, for many people, they may think, oh, I'm going to get the genetic testing, and so what? This kid's still not going to grow. <laughs> so, mm. so maybe I'm going to save myself the cost. I'm not going to send it. So can you talk about like, the value of, yeah. of, of having that information? And how does that, I mean, there's been a lot of papers being published on this, but how does that impact care and yeah. uh, what happens to these infants? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, taking the growth issue, for example, so um, say that you send the test and you make a diagnosis of wolf horsehorn. So a diagnosis that we know um, those kids have significant difficulties growing, and there's actually dedicated growth curves mm-hmm. for those children. So they actually grow at different trajectories, even when you have optimal nutrition. And so sometimes that answer and knowing that that's why you have a small baby it can allow the clinicians to reset, right? Yeah. This isn't a baby that we need to keep pushing, pushing. 30 yeah. calorie, more yeah. volume, more volume, because it doesn't matter. And They and, don't have that capacity to grow at the same rate as other children that don't have that disorder. And there's a lot of nutritional interventions yeah. that are very risky. Mm-hmm. Once you start pushing those calories, mm-hmm. God knows what can happen when yeah. the osmolarity yeah. gets to a certain point. So yeah. not only are you... Um, 
are you not helping, but you're also maybe even harming yeah. the patients in some cases? So that's an example of, of when you make that diagnosis, it's not so much that you do something else to get the child to grow, but you stop doing things that you were right. doing that weren't helping the right. situation. Right. Um, and you're, you're able to better counsel a family about the growth trajectory um, yeah. for, for those children um, and also mode of feeding. So mm -hmm. those children have very very significant difficulties achieving oral feedings. Right. And um, they almost all need feeding tubes for long-term support. So that's not a baby that you're going to keep in your unit mm -hmm. for another month trying to get them to orally uh -huh. feed before you say, okay, it's time for us to go down a feeding tube pathway and go home. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and kind of move in a different direction with the care of the patient. And so... Um, those are examples with that one diagnosis where there's one thing that you stop doing, mm -hmm. right? So you tr stop trying to force more calories mm -hmm. and everything into a child that doesn't have the capacity to grow at a similar rate for a child that doesn't have that diagnosis. And you also, sooner rather than later, change your mode of feeding, right? Your goals for mode of feeding. It, it becomes less about trying to attain oral skills, to feed and go home, but more of, of acknowledging it, it's not a problem that we're not doing enough or a family's not doing enough to get the child to orally feed. It's that with that particular diagnosis, that is a significant health problem that those children face, and we need to focus more on artificial feedings. Right, right. Children. That's very well said. Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think we say, okay, oh, it decreases length of stay, but for a family who doesn't go home thinking, gosh, I'm doing everything I can. My kid still doesn't gain weight. Like, what am I doing wrong? So many doctors visits, subspecialist visits. I mean, it really, I think, changes their whole early life trajectory. Yeah. I mean, um, this is, we can relieve you know, that, them of that. Yeah. I mean, this, that particular diagnosis has a pretty well established, um, Facebook support yeah, group. Yeah. Support network. And, sure. um, to the point that those families um, can drop a pin where they are. Mm. And so a new family that's just received that diagnosis can immediately go to that website, see all over the world where those families are, can identify a family that's close to them, can reach out, can actually go and meet that family. I, I've had this experience happen yeah. with my families, and it so helps them to connect with someone else who's experiencing the same thing, but maybe is a little further along their journey, you know, than they are. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, tips and tricks that they've learned mm -hmm. that's not in our literature that mm -hmm. we're never going to tell a family, here's... You we're know, never going to test in a randomized control yeah, trial. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think um, medically, you know, a lot of what's been studied about, you know, the medical benefits of making a diagnosis changes in medical care... Um, what hasn't been so studied is what families do with this information. Okay. You know, uh, families do things like I, I mentioned. They they find support from other families mm -hmm. with that diagnosis. They change their savings pattern mm. um, because they now know that they have a clear trajectory of their child's overall health care needs long term, and they begin earlier. Saving differently to provide long-term care for children that are going to need that. They sometimes relocate to centers that have dedicated programs for that specific diagnosis so that they can, you know, know that they're optimizing care for that child. Um, and like you mentioned, these families stop beating themselves up. They mm. should have never been beating themselves mm -hmm. up, right? 
but we know families do that. They look inside. Why, why have, what have I done wrong? Yeah. But having a diagnosis sometimes helps those families to know there wasn't anything I did. You know, it doesn't matter how many times we tell them that, you know, sometimes having that diagnosis helps to solidify that in their mind that there was nothing that they did that caused their child to have these health problems. Right. Yeah, and I really appreciate your point about the peer support because that's something we keep hearing over and over again. I mean, families are desperate for for finding um, others that have kind of a, a shared um, experience as them. Sabrina, tell us why you joined the focus group. Yes. Um, and uh, you both are leading the focus group, right? Well, I, I should say that I'm the new kid on the block <laughs> okay. in the focus group. It has been very well led by Kristen and Bamal. And um, what I like to think is my contribution into the group is my passion is around implementation of rapid whole genome sequencing. Mm-hmm. So the technology is there and we're doing it in our level fours, but I'm really pushing to how can we roll this out in an equitable equitable mm-hmm. way to our level three mm-hmm. NICUs, which still have the need um, for this technology and making sure that we are providing education, um, not just at a provider level, but also figuring out what we need to do to support these families, what they need to understand when consenting for this test and um what they do with the results in the long term. And so that that's really my my big push is education because Kristen and I both agree there are not enough medical geneticists mm-hmm. and genetic counselors in the world. And so we're really going to need to empower ourselves as neonatologists to learn how to deal with genomic testing and um, know how to utilize it well. Have you learned anything about uh, convincing hospitals to run these tests? Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. To learn more, visit hcp.meadjohnson.com. Yes, yes. So um, we have the benefit um, at Primary Children's to be part of Intermountain Health, um, which includes uh, probably about four to five level three NICUs throughout the state of Utah. And we work really closely with administration. They see the benefit. I think it's it's quite obvious just from what Kristen was describing of the impact to our clinical care and also the impact for the families. And so I think it's usually a pretty easy conversation. It's more so how do we build an infrastructure to support it, especially when you're outside of that level four and you don't have ready access to a lot of those pediatric subspecialists. Yeah, absolutely. What what is, can you give us an example of equitable rollout of genomic mm. testing in the NICU. I'm just, I'm just thinking of if I was listening in the car and I'd be like, I w- I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. Like I think of it more of just geographic area. Um, for us in Utah, we cover a large geographical area. And I hate to think that just because you're born at one hospital, you don't have the same access to Makes this sense. technology mm-hmm. 
that we have if you're born at another place. Um, and so really it's just making sure that we're creating access no matter where you are, because it's not always an option to get transported out. For that, and for that reason, okay, for that makes sense. For just that reason. I'm no, sure, though, that there are other disparities in, in genomic testing, you know, families who are eventually able to advocate for the testing or able to be in hospital systems that, you know, can can access testing. Absolutely. I would say there's still a lot of work to be done with just um, availability of the consents in multiple mm. languages. Mm-hmm. Um, we still are very much in a place with genomics that we know that our reference genome does not reflect all of our populations that we're testing. And so there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, I think the other um, area that impacts equity that um, is more what I've been focusing on at Riley is that we really have seen that there's significant provider variability mm-hmm. um, in recognizing symptoms that could have a genetic cause um, and either, you know, ordering appropriate testing themselves or referring patients to genetics providers that can order appropriate testing. We've seen um, even amongst genetic providers that there's also significant variability. Kristen, Um, can I ask you to get closer to the mic if you don't mind? Yeah, thank you. So we also um, have seen with geneticists that there's significant variability Mm -hmm. in terms of their level of concern for a genetic problem, their um, willingness to order, you know, kind of what is their threshold, Mm -hmm. you know. And so one of the things that we've done in Riley as um, in 2022, we implemented a standard guideline right. with criteria for who should have a genetic evaluation. Oh. Um, <laughs> and, and then we created an algorithm for how that genetic evaluation would work. And so we partnered um, the neonatology and the genetics groups to do this. Um, and so we, you know, created that criteria and the expectation is, is that if that's present on admission, that evaluation gets started on admission. If it's something that's not present on admission but develops during the hospital course, that that um, evaluation gets initiated at that point. And that in a patient that has those symptoms, if they have a phenotype that's clearly recognizable for a specific genetic condition like Down syndrome, Mm -hmm. we'll send a karyotype to confirm that particular diagnosis, right? But what we found is that we actually can rarely recognize a specific phenotype right. when a patient presents with symptoms that are concerning for a genetic condition. And so if that's the case, our test of choice is rapid whole genome. And one of the things that I appreciate about what you said, Sabrina, is that we need to get comfortable with those tests, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking about this and it's like us calling the neurologist with every head ultrasound. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. we're not doing that. So I think that same level of comfort we should start getting with genetic testing. And that's going to require education. What is, it's what is totally a, doable. Yeah, I think so. But, totally doable. But if we're neonatologists, we have the same training that... I mean, the geneticists are not smarter than us. I mean, they're just... <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not touching that. I work with some amazing medical geneticists that I appreciate. No. Yeah. I don't know Here what you our, go, Ben. I know. I had to create the controversy. Yeah, no, but, but for people who are listening, where what is some of the resources you would recommend to actually... Uh, uh, catch up to that uh, and and get educated so that we can feel a bit more comfortable. Yeah, 
Yeah, um, we actually had a great opportunity during um, this conference to do a workshop really on showing providers references that already exist that are really great to use. Like you don't have to rewrite the science. Um, There are websites that you can use for variant interpretation. There's websites that you can use that really break it down to this is part of the management. This is the surveillance for the future. This is the reoccurrence rate. Mm -hmm. So especially if we don't have readily access to geneticists, the neonatologists feel comfortable looking this up and being able to have at least an initial conversation with the family so that we're very transparent that they have all the information that we have. Very cool. Are there any websites top of mind that you can share? Oh, sure. Um, OMIM is really uh-huh. good. Yeah. Uh, Gene Reviews is probably my personal favorite. I am I'm writing that one down. Uh-huh. Not a paid um, <laughs> advertisement. No, it's just, I think it's a very um, clinician friendly website right. that's a good start. Unfortunately, in the space of rare diseases, though, there's not always a Gene mm. Reviews article mm-hmm. for it. But um, I think if you just go looking, you can use GARD through NHGRI. Um, is usually also a really good start. Um, and then there's also really great parent resources that right. you can use. Because I think um, when you're having these conversations Because <laughs> then they, family, have, they have questions. And they yeah. have so many questions, right? <laughs> you, you are hitting them with information and probably what they take away from that initial conversation, I don't know. Maybe He's not the right specialist. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we talked about this at the workshop a little bit is that um, what we're seeing when we look in our level four units um, about what genetic diagnoses we're making is what we're finding is that we make a lot of different diagnoses one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's not that we're making the same diagnosis over and over again so that you can memorize mm-hmm. what are all the things I need to know about Down syndrome, for example, right. or trisomy 18, because those are things the boards love to test you mm-hmm. on, right? But really what uh, what you almost have to do is go back to sort of what you did in medical school in something like gross anatomy, which I'm sure as neonatologists, none of us was like, oh, this is my favorite <laughs> class, right? But what did you have to do? You had to cram and dump, cram yeah. and dump. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's what you have to do when you make these diagnoses is you're going to get something back that you've never heard of, that you've never seen before. Um, and you've got to quickly learn about that disorder yeah. and learn about what you need to do medically, learn about how to counsel a family about that particular diagnosis. And then you're going to go to your next patient and you're going to do that all over again. Mm-hmm. For a different diagnosis. And I think that if you do have a positive diagnosis, then even consulting your geneticist and or other team members, that's perfectly appropriate. But waiting to get the consult to initiate the workup, as you've said earlier, is probably too slow at this point. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, so we, we have to get better about, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about with this testing is you really need to carefully phenotype the patient because yep. um, mm-hmm. the labs need that information to be able to do a complete analysis. And so you need to do things like, you know, if you've identified one anomaly, you need to go looking. Are there mm-hmm. others right. that um, are, are part of this phenotype? You know, are there any dysmorphisms? 
get your eye exam early. You know, do we have a retinal coloboma that we didn't see that would be important for the lab to know about? You know, get the brain MRI to see, you know, in this kid with unexplained hypotonia, do you have CNS anomalies that can explain that? You know, send your CPK level to Mm -hmm. see, you know, do we have any evidence of a myopathic process going on there? Um, So doing those things early. Yeah. Um, prior to it, your test initiation and then initiating your testing, you know, right after you get that information. So that way, you know, everything that you can know um, symptom wise that the patient is having and you can provide that information to the lab and you can get the testing, appropriate testing initiated after you've counseled the family about that. That's great. And I think, yeah, that's a really important, especially with whole genome sequencing, you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. And Mm -hmm. so making sure that you have a very clear clinical presentation really helps you be able to find if there's something there. And the other thing I just want to point out is the real power behind this test is it's not one point in time. Mm -hmm. Once the data is sequenced, you know, we can go back and take a look at it six months later, one year later, especially as our population is growing and they may not have fully developed their clinical presentation. Um, It is really important that if something new comes along, you have that relationship with the laboratory to call them and say, hey, we now have this new finding. Does that change your result at all? Yeah, something we've been talking about on the podcast about patients in waiting, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. Very interesting. I really like those um, uh, points about the genetic workup is also not just sending the test, right? It's it's looking for other things. And those are things that we are qualified to do. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think it's important as neonatologists that we build empowered to, you know, initiate this process and to recognize these symptoms and understand how to navigate this landscape because this is, this is, you know, precision medicine. This is, this is what we're talking um, about. You know, and, and, you know, what, um, when you go to larger meetings like American college of medical genetics or other, other conferences like that, what they talk about is when is this going to be medicine? Uh, When we don't, call it genomic medicine, right? right? But when has this just become part of our practice, part of how we care for all of the patients that we see every day? Absolutely. Kristen, Sabrina, thank you so much for making the time. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the Apple Podcasts website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the-incubator.org. You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at NICU Podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.